Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Do you want to say it or should I? I I think we should say it together. This This is Behavioral Grooves' 100th episode. Woohoo! Woohoo! All right. Ah. Ah, cheers, man. <laughs> cheers to you too, buddy. Man, we <laughs> just got beer all over my computer. This is, this is what it means when we're 100 episodes in. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Listen, we are so excited because Behavioral Grooves is like a dream. It's like skiing in deep powder for you or hitting exactly the right note at the right time during that guitar solo for me. You know, you know your analogies in 100 episodes have... Have not improved. I'm just gonna say they have not improved. Um, well, I, I just I don't want to fail to dis. I don't want to disappoint. All know? right, all right. So, so who would have thought that when we started out two years ago without a clue about how to produce or publish a podcast that we would reach this milestone? I I know I didn't. Yeah, I had no. no idea. Uh, all we had was Dr. James Heyman, a computer, and a dinky little microphone <laughs> that we hovered around uh, at a, on a table uh, before uh, a conversation we had at a meetup that we were in doing a that bar. Night. In a bar. <laughs> I know. But there we go. And now, a hundred episodes later, here we are. Ah, yeah, still just enjoying that beer. Okay, so um, there were so many great memories. We could go on for hours, I think. We literally could. Yes, but we probably shouldn't because we really (laughs) do have a cool episode to share for our 100th episode. Yeah, so we really didn't do anything special for this episode, did we? What? (laughs) Oh, wait, oh, wait. Yes, 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 we did. Yes, Kurt and I went to Philadelphia where we met up with our guests, uh, Annie Duke, Jeff Chrysler, and Dr. Michael Halsworth in front of a live audience at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And they were terrific guests and Mm. terrific audience. We laughed. We shared great insights into the discussion uh, and really spent a great hour with them. So, yeah. Like over an hour. Over an hour. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, this episode is a bit longer than our usual ones. (laughs) I don't think anybody's going to mind because, you know, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. Okay. So, let's set the stage with our guests. First, we should let you know that our first guest was Dr. Michael Halsworth, and he is the managing director of the Behavioral Insights team in North America. Before this, he worked on health and taxes. Uh, that's a weird combination. <laughs> I know, but in the cabinet office of the UK government, so it's not a you know not a crappy job. And, and he's also one of the creators of behavior change frameworks, including Mindspace and East. And he was a previous guest on Behavioral Grooves. Very fun guest, too. Yes. Yeah. Our next guest was Annie Duke, the author of Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All of the Facts, which quickly became a national bestseller. Some of you may know her from her past life as a professional card player, where she won millions in a tournament poker. Um, but yeah. she wasn't the first woman to win no. the the bracelet, no. and she she points that out. We mentioned that in her introduction in the live show, uh, and it should be noted that she is also the founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education, and also. I think she is the person that I have quoted most in our grooving sessions. It's because she's got such great stuff. Yeah. And she is one of our past podcast guests as well. Yes, she is. Yeah. Last but certainly not least is Jeff Chrysler. 
Jeff is a Princeton-educated lawyer who became a comedian and then an author and then a total advocate for behavioral science. And with his co-author, Dan Ariely, they wrote this wonderful book called Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend It Smarter. I guarantee it will help you manage your money better and it will put a smile on your face at the same time. And it is important that we express our thanks to our sponsors. Podbean, who has been hosting us since the very first episode, 100 of those things ago, uh, supported our endeavor and helped us live stream our event to listeners all over the world. And we are very grateful to People Science, an organization that supports the application of behavioral sciences with a very special emphasis on the world of rewards and recognition. People Science is a terrific resource for job postings and original authorship. They that- even publish your work. <laughs> yes, they do. And most importantly, People Science is doing something that we love. They are bringing more science to the world of work. Yes, yes. Oh, so good. And we can't go without thanking Annie for driving over an hour each way in rush hour traffic oh, to get no to the kidding. auditorium in Philly. Yes. And Michael and Jeff for taking the train from New York to spend the evening with us. And then Michael having to get up early the next morning to catch a pre-dawn flight to Boston uh, so he could give a talk at Harvard the next day. And Jeff having to get on that train like the at last, like midnight. Yeah, the last train from got Philly. Got home to New York at... Well after 1 a.m. Yes. So thank you for uh, to those uh, guests and for all that they did. Truly. There's also some gratitude that we need to express to our peeps, Kurt. And that was calling attention to Ben Granlund and Rhea Parks for jumping feet first into an event that they had very little preparation for. Uh, we, we should thank Chris Nave and Eugen DeMont at UPenn for sending their master students over to the hall after a very long day of lectures. <laughs> yes. Golly. Uh, and a very special thank you to our longtime friend and stage manager, Trey Altimos. Let me tell you, your best friend at any live event is your stage manager. And Trey was right there with us at every single turn. Cheers to everyone we just mentioned. Cheers. All right. So with that, we are sharing the original unedited audio from our 100th episode live event at the historic Hamilton Auditorium in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And after that conversation, make sure you keep listening for Tim and Mai's grooving session and the special bonus track that we have at the end. Yes. So now... Sit back with your hundred-year-old scotch (laughs) or some other old, wise, mature drink and enjoy the hundredth episode of Behavioral Grooves. Uh, And I want to start, Michael, first. Um, Let's get this discussion started. And so can you help us with understanding what are some of the common errors that we make when we are in decision-making mode or when we're making decisions? Sure. I mean, there are plenty of things to talk about here. Um, <laughs> right, right. We could just, well, that, that would be whole night. We could yeah. just talk about Tim and, you know, how he makes his decisions. <laughs> sure. So I think, um, I think the two that are worth starting off thinking about are overconfidence um, and attention. And with overconfidence, we're talking about the well-known kind of tendency to um, overrate some your own abilities and be over-optimistic about the outcomes of your plans. Um, so the example people often use is um, most drivers think that they're a better than average driver. Um, 
Yep. I am, for sure. Do you, do you lower your glasses onto your eyes when you drive? Why you would I need to do that? Hole? Come on. Why would I need to do that? For our listeners at home, the entire time I've known him, his glasses are only on his forehead, as if it's a cheap toupee, really, is what it is for him. Hey, but toupees are expensive, so. <clears throat> Sorry, let's keep it serious. Okay. It's going to be like this whole isn't it? Yeah. I don't have, yeah. this is imposter syndrome. I don't yes. have real substance, so I just got to periodically clown around a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, there are, basically, this is a big problem quite often, particularly if you're in a position of responsibility. You have to make some plans. You say how much it's going to cost, how long is it going to take. Frequently, we overestimate or underestimate how long it will take. Um, and this is a particular problem because if you get onto the surface, you see things like it's the people who are in a higher degree of responsibility in more senior positions are more vulnerable to that kind of overconfidence. So you can see this in data around public officials, for example. Um, you ask people, you know, what's your, what's your um, perceived expertise in the area, then you measure it, and you see the bigger gap is when you are more senior, and that's difficult because they're the people who um, others find it difficult to kind of give these messages to, to explain actually, that's probably not going to plan out that way. It's probably going to take longer and be more expensive. But it's, they're the people you really need to influence. Overconfidence is a really pervasive issue, um, which you know, is particularly problematic for those making decisions at the top. So I think that's one thing. Quick other thing, attention. We have very uh, effective shortcuts to filter out the vast amount of information we come across all the time. This does sometimes cause problems, though. Um, we, in particular, are vulnerable to confirmation bias. We seek out information that confirms our existing views. And indeed, when we get that information, very quickly, we form views, which, although we've just formed them, become very persistent and enduring. And some of the old experiments are, are really interesting here, like uh, in the 50s, the experiment where they had some static uh, on a tape that you were hearing messages about. You could kind of hear what people were saying. Um, and they found that um, the message was kind of about lung cancer and smoking. And the, the bits uh, that said, well, maybe the evidence isn't as strong as we think, or kind of questioned it. Well. That was the point at which the smokers pressed a button to, to clear the static. They wanted to hear those bits because it made them feel better about you know, the habit they had. So it's, there's a big issue around the kinds of information we seek out. And then once we seize upon opinion, we form it quickly and we defend that opinion. And you know it can be very difficult to shift it. Often we actually, when we encounter a bit of information that contradicts it, we'll reject it, come up for reasons why that's wrong, why the person saying that is biased, and I'm not going to believe that, and we hold that existing opinion even more strongly. I think you see some real problems with that, perhaps in a wider sense with politics or other issues today. Yeah, uh, thank you. That, that's a great foundation. And as you said, you could go on for hours right about that. But Annie, you wrote a book to help, help people with making decisions, especially in uncertainty, right? To help overcome some of these things. What are some of the ways that we can start to overcome uh, these these troubles, this overconfidence, uh, especially. Um, okay, so first of all, I just want to clear something up. I was not the first woman to win a World Series of Poker bracelet. Oh, I just want to say that. What? There are other women who won before me, and women who have won after me. Well, in That's our minds, it's a very tiny number. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very tiny number, but I was not the first one. Thank you for the correction, <laughs> but in our minds, we're going to live the lie. Right. Okay, that's fair. 
Um, Confirmation bias, right? So, <laughs> right. So, all right. So, how do you overcome some of the uh, kinds of things that Michael was talking about? Which, j just so people sort of have a framework, just to sort of sum it up, it, in general, it goes into this category of motivated reasoning, where we we really believe that information is in the driver's seat. Like, we, information comes in, we think about it objectively in the context of other things that we know, or who delivered it, or you know, we think very critically about it, and only after doing that kind of vetting will we actually update or form new beliefs. Um, but actually, it's the opposite. Our beliefs are in the driver's seat. The things we believe actually um, really, really distort the way that we process information, specifically with the motivation to reinforce the beliefs that we already have. So that's just kind of this problem and confirmation bias, disconfirmation bias, kind of go into that. Overconfidence actually fits into that as well because we have a core belief about our own competency um, that overconfidence as we're thinking about things um, fits into. So, uh, but like Michael said, there's so many things that you could, <laughs> that you could say about this. So I'm gonna kind of hit it one. Great. Um, which is if we think about uh, information as th there's stuff we know and stuff we don't know, and there are these two boxes. And if we were trying to sort of draw that to scale, the stuff we know would sort of fit on the head of a pin, and the stuff we don't know would be the size of the universe. So as Michael wow, that's, just- that's a, that's a really graphic image. Yeah. The stuff that we know would fit on the head, of, head a of a pin. And the head of a pin, and the stuff we don't know is like the okay. size of the universe. call attention to that. So uh, there's actually a little illustration of that in my new book, so I'm <laughs> stealing from that. But so, so if we think about what Michael just said, really kind of the deep thing that he's saying is that as we peer into that world of stuff that we don't know, we're doing a selective look. And a lot of the problem is not just sort of what's the information that we seek out, but how are we interacting with other people um, in a way that makes it so that, that that look becomes selective, so that we're hearing the stuff that agrees with us and not hearing the stuff that doesn't agree with us. So a lot of what I try to think about is one of the ways to solve for this is how do we interact with the world in a way that's going to give us more a broader swath of the things that we don't know, in particular, the places where other people's belief diverges from our own. So I'm going to give you a very simple example. When we elicit feedback from other people, particularly about things that we've already done, um, sometimes about things we're thinking of doing. Um, we don't really know it, but you're a lawyer. We lead the witness. <laughs> so I'll give you a, a simple example in people's own lives. Uh, you read an opinion piece, and let's say that I'm asking you um, for your opinion on this, Kurt, and I say, um, hey, I read this opinion piece, and it said this, 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 and this, and here's what I think. I think that the person who wrote this was missing this data, and they weren't thinking about a different way to look at it, and uh, they were only quoting people who were biased, and blah, blah, blah. And I tell you all this sort of things that I think about it, and then I say to you, what do you think? Yeah. Well, if you disagree with me, I'm very unlikely to find that out. <laughs> so We're not honest. We're not going to just come and say, hey. That's not what I think? Not really. I mean, there's first of all, there's a lot of social norms that if, if you disagree with me, you're very unlikely to tell me just because, like, you know, we're buds. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, the things that I'm saying will actually influence what your own beliefs are. So, so another thing that Michael pointed out is that we'll form beliefs with very little evidence. And the fact that someone, particularly someone who you're friends with, has said something can often implant a belief and you don't even know that that's happened. And one of the reasons I think that we offer sort of our color is because we think it's, 
relevant. We think it's, it's important data. But what it's doing is it's actually tamping down my ability to peer into the disagreement, right? So, so another thing I think about is the way that knowing the way that something turned out can also distort the feedback that you get. So this is an example I'll give you from poker. Um, so uh, you don't need to know much about poker, but let's say that I'm trying to get your advice about a poker hand. The way that that would normally go is me saying, you know, so Michael raised in front of me and then I re-raised and then he re-raised me back and then I called and then here were these cards and then he did this and I did this and so on and so forth. And I'll tell you to the end of the hand where you sort of know who won or lost. And then I'll say, so what do you think about how I played it? Well, again, I'm kind of, you know, you're leading not really the witness. Yeah, right. And so uh, the way that you can deal with that is actually to iterate your feedback where you're trying to always put the person that you're asking into the same state of knowledge that you had at the time. So the way that I would do that is I would tell you relevant details like how what's your frequency of entering a pot and are you on the aggressive side? Do you raise a lot? I'd give you that information. Then I'd say, so Michael raised in front of me. I looked down and I had ace queen. What do you think I should do? Now, I, I know what I did. But I don't let you know that because what I'm always trying to do is get the most dispersion to show through because that's the corrective information that I'm trying to get. And I'm, I'm usually interacting in a way that's reducing the amount of dispersion that I see, which reduces how much correction I can find. Right. So you're in, in leading that witness. What you're basically saying is I want you to affirm what I've already done to a certain degree. Yeah. And, and let me I want to be clear is that. It's not, nobody's trying to intentionally manipulate anybody that you're actually just trying to manipulate yourself because, <laughs> because you, you can kind of think about your beliefs as the, the, the stuff that is the fabric of your identity mm. and nobody wants that fabric torn. You want to keep that fabric intact. So in order to keep your identity intact, you must keep your beliefs intact. And so when you find out somebody disagrees with you, that's just like, it's a tear you know, that you're going to have to like try so, uh, to figure out to, right. And so, so we, we want, we want that to happen as little as possible. And so there's all these little ways in which we're just speaking and talking and asking for advice and who we're seeking it out from and whatnot. That's just kind of just reducing the dispersion yeah. and keeping us in a lane. It, 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 it reminds me of something that Jeff wrote in his book about the person that we trust the most in the world is ourselves. Yeah, which goes to the overconfidence thing that Michael was talking about. Yeah. So, so when you think about that, you know how how does that impact when we trust ourselves most? Um, how does that impact our decision making, and, and what can we do in order to help? You know, some, and brought up some really good things here. But well, I think that's one of the biggest challenges in any of the fields where behavioral science or any decision is uh, at play is that we sort of are our most trusted advisor. And I sort of want to build on something Annie said. I know people listening can't watch this, but raise your hand if in the last year, I'll report to the listeners, um, you've told a lie of any sort, little white lie. Everybody's raise their hands. Okay. Um, raise your hand if you consider yourself an honest person. Okay. Everybody raise their hands. Now, well, the reason why I thought of this is when you're talking about identity, like you just said you're an honest person, but you also said you lied. So in the very like basic definition of it, you're wrong. You're not an honest person. <laughs> what? You're, you're all liars. But we can all, right now, we're all finding that justification for why, no, I was telling my kid they were Santa Claus. Like, whatever. I was what? cheating on my wife. Whatever your little lie was. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What do you mean, Santa Claus? What about cheating on your wife? No, that's easy. Yeah. Uh, Santa Claus. Um, 
I like that. This is they're like dissecting the humor as it goes. <laughs> uh, so we will do everything we can to prevent that cognitive dissonance, right? To prevent that, that thing that says we're doing the wrong thing or we're not the person who we thought we were. And that is the real challenge that we confront because it, it, it's why it's hard to change habits. It's why it's hard to make different decisions, why it's hard to get advice, whether you're a corporate leader or a poker player, that contradicts what you think is going to happen. And so much of it, as Annie also pointed out, is unconscious, right? You, you want that advice. You want to make the right decision, but in presenting it, we're driven by this sort of uh, you know, innate, unconscious need to not have it come back and, and blow up our identity. Uh, you know, I, I often will say, don't believe everything you think. Mm. Um, it's sort of easier said than done. But to sort of challenge yourself, uh, particularly on these repeated decisions, uh, like I, I hate, you know, obviously the book that I wrote about was particularly financial decision making. So a lot of my examples come from there. I hate the Susie Orman, don't buy the $5 latte lesson. I think people should enjoy their lives. But it's, there's an element that I find instructive, which is at some point we go and make a decision, I'm going to buy this $5 latte because I, I want to. And we make a sort of a little calculation. The next day we go and we humans, we don't want to make the hard decision. We don't want to think again. We want to find some little cue, some little nudge, some little thing that tells us what the right choice is. And so we think about yesterday. Oh, yesterday I thought about it and I'm a really smart guy and I said it was okay to do it. So the $5 latte then becomes a third day, like, oh, I decided this twice. So soon it becomes automatic because you've made that decision. Now, I'm again, buy the lattes, but in any other decisions that often happens that like once we make a choice one time, we're going to keep building on it. I mean, particularly in the financial setting when it's like paying, you know, $200 a month for cell phone bills, $150 for cable, a car payment, whatever it is, those things really add up, those repetitive decisions that we don't look at because we think we made the right choice. Um, and if I can layer on one other point here, particularly for this audience that has some interest in behavioral science, um, there's this thing that I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, called the blind spot bias, mm -hmm. which particularly relates to like, not just we think we're better drivers, but we think we're above, because we know about all these biases we're talking about, we're above it. Um, the, I, I, I thought we were. You, we're, you are. Okay, okay. Because just, you, okay, you, you are. <laughs> you, are. <laughs> you have each other. Kurt, you have Kurt to like, Kurt reminds I, I, I bring the average down, so Tim raises it. Right. So real quick, the, the, the study that I rely upon this is, um, they asked a bunch of doctors, they said, if uh, you were given a gift from a pharmaceutical company, would that influence your decision whether or not to prescribe their drug? And I don't know the numbers, but let's say 70% said no. Who wouldn't? Like, I, I wouldn't be affected by that. Then they asked doctors if a, you know, just generic, if a doctor was given a gift from a pharmaceutical company, would that influence their decision to prescribe that drug? And 70% said yes. So they recognize that conflict of interest, but I'm better than that. And it's another type of bias that particularly I am aware of as I converse with and get the writing of people that study these biases, it's another layer of that that we have to watch out for. So that's kind of a, a bit, a little bit around base rates, right? And I know you have been writing about base rates in your I upcoming book. very recently. <laughs> <laughs> so help us expand. So help, help the listeners understand what base rates are and, and why they are so prevalent in kind of our decision making and some of the, the mistakes that we might make. And mistakes might be the wrong word. Sure. So, so actually, let me put it in a broader context. So when a doctor is thinking about their own behavior, we can put that into a category called the inside view. So the inside view is thinking about your own particular experiences, things that are particular to you as you sort of look out at the world. So it's applying your own perspectives and experience to try to figure out 
sort of how you're viewing the world. The outside view is the way it's one of it's sort of a combination of two things: what's true of the world in general, or the way that somebody else would view your situation. Mm. So we can think about, for example, like um, uh, there's you you have particular data, and one person may may say the data says A. So that would be their inside view. And then if I showed it to somebody else, they may, they may actually view it differently. And this is what's happening to the doctors. When they say, oh, no, that wouldn't influence me. That's the inside view. When you say, well, what, what would happen if another doctor did it? Now they're shifting to the outside view. So, um, so one of the things, and I think uh, Danny Kahneman in particular really talks nicely about this, is that because um, – we were essentially living instantiations of like the inside view because this is obviously we live inside our own heads. Um, that what we want to do is start at the outside view, right? We want to start at what's generally true of the world. How would somebody else see my situation? And then at mm -hmm. sprinkle in the inside view because the things are, that are particular to you do matter, but they don't matter nearly as much as you think they do. Overconfidence, right? So, um, so, and and so, a base rate is part of finding the outside view of finding your way to the outside view. So, a base rate, really simply put, is how often does something occur in a situation similar to yours? So, for example, if you're thinking about opening a restaurant, um, you can go look up for restaurants that open in the United States. What percentage of those are still in existence? a year after it's been opened. So as you're trying to think about what's the probability that my restaurant is going to be successful and still open in a year, a good place to start is go look at what, what the base rate is. Um, and then you can add things that are particular to you, like I'm, I'm, I'm a really good cook, or um, but you're not gonna move very far off the base rate. You can think of it as like um, kind of a, a center of gravity that you're, you should be sort of spinning around and you shouldn't really ever move too far from that. Now, just as a, just as a, um, in, in addition to kind of thinking about base rates, um, uh, inside and outside view actually interacts in a very interesting way with how much skill or how much luck is in an activity. So the more that something is sitting on the luck continuum, the more that you would just completely rely on the base rate. So if you want to know how often you're going to win the lottery, it, don't you're not a good number picker like it doesn't matter <laughs> like just go look at the base rate like what's the probability of winning the lottery that's literally all you need to know um but if you're wondering about how often a particular individual might get in their first serve in tennis now you're talking about something that's quite a bit of skill it would be good to know things that are very particular to them it's much better to go into the inside view now just as an aside one aspect of overconfidence is something called an illusion of control, which is that we tend to think that we're more skillful than we are, which is why Kahneman tells you to start at the outside view, because you're always going to think there's more skill involved than there is, which is why I'm always a little reluctant to say this thing about luck and skill, but Michael Malverson would kill me if I didn't. So, <laughs> so I just want to point that out is that just always start there and then add layer in the particulars afterwards. And that's a good way to think about what base rates is doing for you. Yeah. Yeah, go illusion ahead, of control. Um, you, you will be familiar with this. I, some of my favorite studies stick my mind from the early 90s with a roulette wheel. You come across yeah. this. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you still do this, but essentially um, they had a roulette wheel and you uh, introduced this kind of handle that basically a handbrake, you could stop yeah. the roulette wheel. 
um, at will, and then of course the ball still bounces around. And you don't <laughs> actually put it in the uh, in the black or the red. Um, people loved it, like to, the, to an, quite extraordinary extent, because of the illusion of control. To the, to, even to the extent that they tried, oh, let's electrocute the handbrake. People still wanted that handbrake. People, let's make it so that we're telling you it's going to make it worse. Like you're less likely to lose if you pull the handbrake. People still wanted the handbrake because of the power of the illusion of control. What do we do to overcome it, Michael? What do we do to, how, how, how do we hack that illusion of control? Um, so I think there are, it, it's difficult because we naturally want to believe it's true. I think you need some different models of thinking of the world for a, for a start. I think of it this in terms of policy, right? Just because of where I come from. And there's a very strong tendency in policymakers to think we can pull levers we, and something will happen in a mechanistic way. And with a lot of, with some problems, that's okay. Like if you're trying to print passports, you know, yeah. print the passports faster, put more people doing that. That's a, that's a kind of a simple problem. Uh, we've got a more complicated problem or complex problem like homelessness. It, it, you can't do that. So what you need to start doing is rather than seeing yourself as um, the kind of the director, I think you need to see yourself as like the overseer or steward of a system. Now you can set some basic rules of the game and goals, uh, but the people who are actually doing things on the ground will then find their own ways of getting towards that goal. Um, maybe the, a, a sports analogy will help, maybe it won't. Um, <laughs> the, so it's a bit like uh, soccer or <laughs> Football, we call football. I thought I was going to do cricket. I was like, <laughs> 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 yes, very, that, nothing happens in cricket. It's really, really bad analogy. For days. For days. Yeah. This is where I'm going to like give a really bad some representation tea, tea. Of, of, of one of the sports. But the, the kind of differing philosophies, is if you're a soccer coach, I'm just going to keep saying soccer. You know, you're doing a great um, job. Yeah, no, you, it sounds convincing when you say bad, soccer. though. Um, <laughs> and uh, what, what you're doing there is you're not like directing every play. Right. You are you have you put people in positions, and the game's quite fluid, and they basically sort of know your tactics, but you have, they are doing most of the work. In um, American football, it's more like. You stop, you get your kicker on. You, this is the play that I'm directing. I'm directing where you're going to move. And part of the issue is you need to move from, you know, maybe that model is right for some problems, but it's not right for other problems. So I think part of it is trying to shift the mental model about what kind of system are we dealing with, what kind of problem. That's one thing you can do. It's not the whole solution, but it gets you some of the way to understanding what you could do better. Can I, uh, that, by the way, I don't mean to, that was great. That was very, the sports analogy worked for me. Um, Thanks, Jeff. Thankfully, go, it wasn't cricket, because then it would have just like... I actually want to go back to your, your question that, that spurred that answer, and I'm, and I'm open to... Um, I want to hear what everyone thinks, because I don't know the answer. And your question was, we talked about the lever pulling thing, Michael, was you said, how do we hack that? And to me, that goes to a bigger question about sort of where behavioral science is, like for practitioners and researchers and culturally, is when you say, how do you hack that? Does that mean, how do you overcome that? How do you change that? Or how do you actually use that for good? And I think that like contextually, there's a lot of things we can do, right? I, as you were talking, I'm thinking about my kids and eating vegetables or whatever, like how can I gamify, right? How can I use that behavioral flaw maybe to create a system for a good outcome? At the same time, there'll be times when you want to like short circuit that. And you I'm sort of doing what You want to electrocute it. Right, I want to electrocute <laughs> I like my kids, but not that much. Um, and I'm sort of doing what Annie's 
example was I'm giving you my opinion after I've sort of laid out the question, but I'm, I'm curious about what people think when they hear, how do you hack it? Or how do you use behavioral science? Like, what does that mean in the context? Is it like how to use your flaws for good? Is it how to overcome it? Is it some mixture contextually? Like when you get asked the question, panelists and you two also. Yeah, so, so I, I, I'm a big believer in two th things, right? Uh, well, let me just say, I'm a big believer in an overarching idea, which is uh, we were born with these operating systems and we can't take them offline to mm -hmm. install a new one. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's like MS-DOS is running in here and I can't get <laughs> iOS in there. <laughs> so you better deal with what you have. So that's, that's the, the kind of overarching idea, which then leads me sort of to two threads. Thread number one is this idea of kind of irrationality stacking and kind of saying, well, you know, all right, uh, I know that there's all sorts of irrational things that I'm gonna do, um, which one's worse? Mm -hmm. um, so that I can do the, the, an irrational thing that's actually gonna sort of get me closer to my goal than, mm -hmm. than a thing that mm -hmm. wouldn't. So, so here's an example. So I'll just give you another poker example. Um, if I were to set a loss limit, in other words, when I go in and I play poker, I'm going to lose, I'm going to quit every time that I've lost X number of dollars. Let's just pretend $500 I'm going to quit. This is a really irrational thing to do because my goal as a poker player is to play anytime I feel like I have positive expectancy. And, and as long as I have positive expectancy, I should continue to play. So I should never have a loss limit because it means I'm going to be getting up from the table sometimes when I have positive expectancy. But what I also recognize is that when I'm in a state of losing, I'm going to be a very poor judge. <laughs> of whether I have positive expectancy. So therefore I'm gonna do this uh, less bad irrational thing in order to short circuit the other thing that I might do which might cause me a lot more damage. Um, and therefore I'm gonna quit even though if I were a perfectly rational human being, that would be a really dumb thing to right. do. So you can think about all sorts of ways that you can um, do that, like keeping food out of your house when you mm. uh, have, when you're on a diet, that's a way to do it. Like there's just no potato chips in my house because I'm not gonna let me myself make that decision ever. It's kind of an irrational thing to do, but it stops you from doing the worst thing. Um, so that's one thing. The, the, the other thing I think about is how can we take some things that people sort of generally view as destructive and sort of turn them for good? So uh, one of the things that I think about a lot is this idea of tribalism. So tribalism's gotten this very bad rap in um, particularly in America right now, and actually in the UK as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. You got a Brexit deal, it's fine. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, it's gonna be it's great. Good. How's that going? So, um, <laughs> can I just say, everybody in America really enjoys seeing what's happening in Britain, so we don't feel so bad about it. <laughs> um, I, I moved here. Yeah. <laughs> good job. Um, so, okay, so anyway, so, so, so tribalism kind of gets a bad rap because it's seen you know, as this kind of idea of like us versus them and it, it causes, you know, all this problem, all these problems in politics and um, so on and so forth. But we know that, that tribalism was selected for it. So it must have some good, it must have some positive aspects to it. So if we think about human beings in general, we're super pathetic physically. I doubt that any of you who met a wild animal that was your size would be perfectly happy to get in a fight with that animal. I'm just guessing. I'm guessing if you ran into a wild animal that was half your size, you would also probably run away. Um, rightly so. Uh, so we know that we're sort of physically pathetic, but we have these really big social brains. This is how we deal with the fact that physically maybe we're not so strong. And so tribalism then um, evolves for a good purpose, which is to stop us all from dying. Okay. 
But what that involves means that we're going to have enough, you know, th this is our tribe and we're protecting our resources against intruders by putting all of our brains together. So I think about this in the context of behavioral science, which is what is it if we know that we have really evolved to need this sense of belongingness, this sense of distinctiveness from other people, um, and people to sort of tell us what's true and not. This is also a very important aspect of tribe. Um, and we know that this belongingness and distinctiveness is very central to sort of the human condition. Well, we do, we can say we're going to form a group that isn't the way a tribe sort of naturally forms, but our group is going to be formed around the fact that we're like mistake admitters and we're disagreement listeners. And when we hear other people who are going, yeah, yeah, you're so great. Yeah, we're so great. We're so right. Those other people are so stupid. We're, that's what's, we're going to listen to that and feel that we're distinct from that because our group is saying, what do you think? Cause I think I might be wrong here. You know, tell, please tell me that I'm wrong. Or we're going to be interacting in a way where, when Jeff says, actually, here's a different way to think about it. I don't become defensive and say, you're out of my group. I say, oh, that's really interesting. I have to go think about that now. And then I hear other people not doing that. And that's actually what causes me to feel good about myself. And so it's a way to, that in the truest sense of the word is a hack. Yeah, you're hacking. You're, you're changing the norms of what that tribe is now focused in on. Right, in a way that happens to align with your goals. So you're getting all of the short-term stuff that we need, which is like, I feel better than everybody else, because don't we all want to? Um, so it's not like I'm somehow overcoming the need to feel like my group is better than other groups. I think that that's folly. I mean, it's great. I, like I go to Tibet, become a monk, try to do it, be my guest, but I don't want to spend my time trying to do that because it's too hard. Right. So instead say, if I know that I kind of would like to feel like I'm superior to other groups, how can I actually make that align with the goal that I want? So Jeff, you said about hacks and what does the hack mean to you? And so I think what Annie just talked about here really aligns with that. I think from a behavior change perspective, if we are looking at behavior that is negative to our long-term outcome, rationally we think about this to your point, the, the having the potato chips or the Oreos in my case inside the house, I know that as much as I want to ignore those Oreos, I, I won't be able, there will be times when I can't. Mm -hmm. And so the hack is then figuring out how do I, how do I either keep those Oreos for my kids? So I put them in the basement, right? Which is just an added layer of friction for me to go down into the basement to get the Oreo at three o'clock in the afternoon when I'm hungry. Um, but it's still there for my kids, which is a requirement. But then, you know, looking at that, but then it's also saying, all right, so what can, how can I turn these, these supposed irrational, you know, things that we do into a gamification component on something good. And so we talked with uh, a, a gentleman who was making uh, this app for people to, cre uh, to take their medicine, right? And they gamified it. They gamified this component of everyday taking our medicine because we know it's one of the biggest, you know, components on these very impactful, you know, cardiovascular diabetes diseases where people don't take their medicine and then that is, makes it worse. And so how do you get people to do that? Well, you tap into some of these things. So those are the hacks. Right. That's what I think about when I say hack. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Michael, I, I know that so much of your research has been leveraging these uh, these heuristics, these decision-making things. And I, I think about some of the work that you did to try to make it easier for people to, if they get a letter from the government saying, 
you should you should register your small business that that it looked like an intimidating government form that freaked people out and and you change that and and basically appealing to this this part of our brains that says oh my gosh that the instant i look at this it looks like a, a nasty government letter but when you changed it you made it more consumery softer right maybe maybe you should talk about that and as a, a great example of a hack yeah i mean i think uh, that we should be a bit self-critical here about hacks as well, though, because okay. um, what, what someone would say is, yeah, that's all very well, but some people can't do these things. Like, um, some people face real barriers to hacking their own behavior around, yeah. you know, the ability to buy some things and um, where, to, where to store them. Um, so, and that's a critical a criticism you often get actually. And so we need to say that, you know, it's maybe in addition to some things as well. There are some things I think that are um, really simple and around attitudes that if, you know, as long as you're, you're, you're feeling okay mentally, actually pretty easy to do. And there's one that I actually is not that so well known, but I think is a really good one, which is um, this idea of, um, how you interpret your nerves before an event. Mm. Uh, and I think this is just, for me, is a hack. Like, if you're going to define this, this is a hack. So, um, you know, people feel anxious before big events, and the usual strategy to uh, deal with that is to try to calm down, calm yourself down. Okay, deal with that, we suppress this. Um, Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a, a paper, which I think is a fascinating paper, that just says, runs experiments to show that, well, what you should actually do is reinterpret your nerves as excitement, right? So you say, rather than saying, I'm, I'm nervous, I'm excited, because we see that as a more positive kind of effective uh, thing. You reappraise what's doing, and this leads you to perform better in public speaking and in various other events. And the, this is actually based on a really kind of interesting idea that actually this is what's going on a lot of the time anyway. Like we're actually interpreting our physiological state as certain things, like as certain emotions, and that's all that kind of is, really. Like you can, and you can misinterpret how you're feeling, or you can change the interpretation of it. And I think that's just something that you could just switch on and off, and could improve outcomes. I see it as a hack. When you get into bigger issues, you know, maybe we're, we're talking about hacks on foundations that you need other people to help you with. Just my take on, on that. You know, philosophically, I'm just, cons I'm curious about how did we go awry? Like Annie, if, 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 we, if we had this, we have this tribalism as something that is so deeply ingrained in our DNA, 40, 50, thought, I don't know how many tens of thousands of years, tribalism has become a part of us and now, we're get, now it's getting a bad rap. How, did, how does that happen when we could be using tribalism for good? You know, you, what, you know, what is, you know, yeah, like, so, so I love, happen? so this is way back from graduate school. <laughs> um, so, you know, ev ev you know, evolution is not, um, uh, we like to anthropomorphize it, <laughs> but it's just kind of going along, right? It's like, do your genes get into the next generation? Like, yeah. That's what, that's all it cares about. So uh, the thing is that there, there's kind of two things. Sometimes something that, that really, really helped us survive, particularly when we have human beings who now can engineer their environments, right? So there's evolution in engineering. And we're now engineering our own environments at a speed with which evolution can sometimes not keep up with. So, right. so an example that I would give of that is that um, 
we have a very insatiable taste for sugar. Uh, and that's because for most of us, you could only get sugar for six weeks out of the year. So eat a lot of it, get a lot of calories in you, and then, you know, you're going to be better for the winter. And now, of course, your Oreos are in the basement. And, you know, we have an insatiable desire for sugar because um, we can create sugar, you know, because we're human beings. So, okay, so sometimes it's just that evolution isn't catching up. And sometimes it's like things sort of get on steroids. And when they sort of get out of the the environment with wood, within which they were useful, um, it just sort of like ends up as sort of this uh, kind of deformed monstrous thing. So the thing that I think about is, um, so evolution, there's all sorts of things for, that are selected for, for sexual characteristics. A peacock's tail would be one of those. Uh, there's a crab that lives in the South where the, sh the thing that showed that you were a virile crab to the female crab was a big claw. So it was one big claw and this got selected for to the point where like now the male crabs just sort of fall over um, <laughs> because the crab, the claw got so humongous. And this, the peacock's tail is actually a little bit like this as well. It makes it, you know, they can't fly. Um, and then eventually, you know, those, those male crabs are going to die out, but it takes a little while for evolution to kind of do its thing. Um, and so I just think that um, the, the tribalism, it's like, it's really great when you're living in tiny little kinship groups it seems like it, it applies about a maximum, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's about 300 people that you're okay at. And once you sort of get beyond that, it starts to do this kind of weird thing. But remember, for the majority of our species evolution, we were not, not even close to more than 300 people. Yeah. So, you know, then you put it into like our social media environment and so on and so forth. And then I feel like it looks like one of those crabs claws. You know, it's causing us <laughs> all to fall over. And then hopefully, I don't know, at some point, we might snuff ourselves out first. But hopefully at some point, we're going to catch up and, and sort of figure that out. And so it's the environment, I mean, the, the, the context, the world that we are creating. It's very different this. than what those that particular the usefulness of that characteristic evolved under circumstances that do not look a lot similar to where we are now. So we need to. So I'm getting back to kind of Jeff's question about hacks and do we use do, do we use behavioral science to add things or do we use it to take them away? You know, Jeff, you've got a. a I, I find about myself this. in part because um, I don't have a PhD and I'm not a practitioner. I consider myself more of like a, still a student of this, and I think we all are probably are students, but. I like to say it's a tool in the tool belt. Um, it's, it's something to use to analyze the situation, but ultimately everything, whether it's designing a product or getting people in a poor country to save or eat more or, or bake a better choice at the poker table, it's contextual. And so to me, the, the behavioral science is a, is a great different perspective to look and analyze something. I mean, I won't go too deep into like how I got here, but for me, <clears throat> I've written a book about cheating. Um, and that's how I got introduced to Dan Ariely. And uh, it was all based upon basically like research, but I never had discovered behavioral science. I went, to, I went and studied, a, got an economics degree at Princeton. I, I never heard of this. And through the cheating book, I discovered Dan and his class. And I talked to his class about cheating. And I would hear these graduate business students who were like, yeah, because of the way I framed it, they would say cheating is good. And, and the point, it was like a light bulb moment for me because I had always just thought, oh, you know, money messes with our brains. And then I discovered there was a science to it. And so in my very narrow area, it made the science and the tools of things like loss aversion and um, you know, uh, anchoring and, and arbitrary, all these scientific things, another way to analyze those moments and those decisions. And that's where I think behavior, that's what I think, my opinion, behavioral science can be used as a tool in those moments. Um, you know, there's, there's other stuff that aren't you know, in, in poker, like is someone on tilt, right? Is that behavioral science or is that just reading people? Um, and, you know, it's uh, and knowing the politics 
of a country. Like, could you get a country to institute some sort of system? That's not behavioral science. That's political science. Yeah. Um, but understanding how it then might impact those people, I think, is important. Well, we we interview, you know, the we interview researchers. We we interview people who apply behavioral science, and then through circumstance, we also interview what we call accidental behavioral scientists, who are exactly what you're saying. They are doing these things out in the real world. They don't know loss aversion from right. you know their their toenail, right? They are just doing stuff because it works. And so, well, and can I give an example of that just real quickly? Excuse me for interrupting you, but I think about Cal Turnbull yeah. with uh, Change My View. He started a Reddit community, and over the course of a couple years, went to six, seven hundred thousand people. He's now got a changeofyou.com uh, space, so that people can go out and engage in civil disagreement, basically, uh, in in a in a space where you can say, "I'm open to not having to that my universe." Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's wonderful. Yeah. So I, I have a quick. Can I? I want. I would like to ask Michael a question. Is that okay? You can. I'm, I want to move over to these chairs, though. I want to be like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, turning her chair and facing. Yeah, him. Uh -oh. looking very prim now. So, so just sort of thinking about this idea of you know uh, tribalism. I think the thing we need to think about is that uh, to your idea about cheating, which you discovered, like you thought everybody thinks it's bad, but then you found out, wait, no, some people think it's good. Um, tribalism has a lot of upside, but it also has a dark side, particularly in a world where there's so much information coming in, it becomes a peg for processing that information. You're in my tribe. That information must be good. You're not that stupid. Um, and we know that that's <laughs> she not good. She was pointing but, at me, but, but, people but, on the live stream. Right. I'm not but, in your tribe. But, that's, a, but that's, a, that's another thing. We think more information is just good, but we know that it's not, yeah. right? Like more information also means that you start to use more proxies in order to process the information, which is not necessarily a good thing. So I, I just want to ask you, because with all of these kinds of tools that we have, um, with behavioral economics, for example, nudging, there's also a dark side to it, which is like sludge, right? Which means, so nudging would be uh, creating a choice architecture that makes it easier for people to get to uh, a thing that will actually improve their well-being or productivity. Sludge would be a way to uh, move them away from that. So let's say that I put a program in that was like a program where I was going to give money to people and I wanted fewer people to do it. I would make big, scary forums and, you know, 17 million windows. Well, the DMV is sludge. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> anyway, so I would love to get your take because I feel like I always have this struggle with when you're implementing this at a policy level, someone's making a decision about like what the goal is or they're implementing it and maybe they're, it's being sludgy or nudgy or whatever. And since you work in this, I'd love to get your take on the sort of dark side and light side of these kinds of things. Yeah, um, sure. So uh, there, are, there are lots of things to say here. Um, I, I, the way I think about behavioral science is it's a lens rather than uh, a tool in a toolbox. And what, what I mean by that is, um, you know, generally speaking, you know, from a policy point of view, you've got incentives, you've got uh, legislation, and you've got information. Um, and some people talk about as if like nudges are, uh, or we could do some nudging, or we could do some behavioral science. It doesn't work like that, in my view, anyway. It's more like, so if you're going to do uh, uh, legislation, apply what we know from behavior. You see those those tools through the lens of behavioral science. 
Um, so what, part of this moves me to a kind of cop-out answer, which is that there are certain things which are kind of, you can separate the, 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 the overlay of behavioral science from it. So it's like, if you don't like paternalism, paternalism exists without behavioral science, okay? So that's, that's one thing. Like, you can have a paternalistic policy that um, is, is not informed by, by evidence at all. But yes, this also leads you to the view that you can um, have uh, applications of behavioral science which are not in the recipient's best interests. Um, now, by the way, that, there are some completely legitimate things there. Like, nudging is about helping people achieve their goals. Now, if you, in terms of crime prevention, that's not a great thing necessarily because, you know, one, pe one people, someone's goal is another person's broken window, right? Um, so already you've got some areas of policy where you're just not in the space of nudging because that's, you're not helping people to inform their goals at all. You're trying to stop them from doing things. Um, but putting that aside, yeah, you, you know, there will be instances where just as for other tools, maybe we don't agree with what's going on. The difference is, do you have a democratically elected government, I suppose? Is it transparent as to what's happening? Would actually, are we trying to improve the way that uh, government's doing something and making it slightly less bad, right, rather through behavioral science than uh, it would have been otherwise? Um, so there are various problems here. Um, if you see behavioral science as a tool, I think there, the one thing I would say is that there should be increased awareness and transparency about what you're doing if you take the view that it's a nudge based primarily on system one. And that's the point, I think, which you, you kind of get away from when you get down to it. If you're saying that a certain policy is predominantly meant not to be noticed in some way, you've got to make it, you've got to have some form of legitimacy for it because um, otherwise, you are theoretically doing something to someone and they're kind of not uh, aware of it. There is one um, response to that, which is, well, government's doing that anyway. But I think with the attention and the power you get through behavioral science, you also have to have the responsibility of saying, well, we're going to try and legitimize it if we know that we're, if we know that people are unlikely to notice it. Yeah. So, so would that be an example, like uh, Annie brought up the DMV, where some countries have an opt-out for whether or not there's going to be an organ donation if they die in a crash, and other countries have an opt-in. And you think that there's a legitimacy argument that goes around that? I, so... I, it get, I, this is fundamentally, I think, a political question, right? Yeah. So that, that's what I was trying to get at with the, the, the lines. Behavioral science is kind of a technocratic, technical approach to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And what you see here is um, as a great study that shows that people like nudges if they are go along with their political views, and they don't like them if they're against <laughs> the political views. Well, that's a big shock right well, there. <laughs> so there was, we were at a conference th today, Michael, and, and, and one together. of the, yeah, together, and one of the, the questions that came, or components that came up was talking about, we're using behavioral science to improve certain different things and bringing those nudges in. And they brought up this component, again, in a governmental component. Are we trying to increase enrollments or are we trying to increase uh, applications, right? Because a, a government agency is trying to get something done and they might say, we just need more applications, but it doesn't lead to greater enrollments in this program that we're trying to do, partly because we don't have 
the resources to be able to do that. But we have to show something that we're doing something good. So it goes back to your component, which is saying, all right, we can use behavioral science, but in the end, is it actually doing anything to the betterment, uh, particularly in a policy perspective when that gets put in place? Um, and, and those are questions I think, again, are beyond, they're bigger than behavioral science, right? Yeah. Behavioral science to that is a, either a lens or a tool, however you, you kind of component. But that aspect is an important aspect of saying, how are we using this? Because it is just a piece of a larger ecosystem. Which is something that, that I'm seeing. It's my role with people science is sort of to try to communicate with people that are new to behavioral science. And I'm seeing a lot of inbound stuff that's like, how can I use behavioral science to fix this problem? Yeah. And it's just like, that's not... It's, whether it's lens or tool, and I appreciate the different perspective, it, it's not a, it's not a fixed thing. So how do you respond to that? How, how do you respond to that? That when someone says, "Jeff, help me," you know, I I, I need I need a, a behavioral science fix to this problem. Um, I say, call Michael or Annie, and they, <laughs> they'll give you their fee structure. Um, I I will do some version of that's not what behavioral science is. It's context driven. It's oh, it's one tool or it's a lens, and I'll just try to put it in that perspective and. I often fall back on language that has to do with essentially a scientific method that you can't, everything has to be piloted or experimented with or tested, whatever your term of art is. Yeah. Um, and then I say, and talk to someone smarter than I. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are really used to the sort of um, kinds of solutions, which are like, this is my five point plan. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when I'm uh, interviewing, when, so when I'm interviewing prospective clients, I say I'm interviewing them because I have limited attention, so I can only do so many people. Um, uh, ooh, that came out really bad. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, um, but would you, anyway. Would you like to reframe? Yes. Uh, yeah, cut that out. Um, no, I can, only, I can only take on so many clients is what I meant, which also sounds really bad. <laughs> no, is it, there's no good way to know, say it. We can't edit okay. this. It's a live stream, yeah. Andy. Okay. We can, can't go in and I'm edit just drop, it. I'm just dropping the. Okay. At any rate, the point is that very often people are coming to me and saying, "What is your five point plan?" And I'm like, "Uh, that's this is not what we do. Um, we have to look at what's unique to if I'm working with an individual, what's unique to you. If I'm working with a team or a company, kind of what's unique to the company." What are sort of the issues? Because everything's an interaction between people, um, and you have to be thinking about that. And then the solutions, even though the the concepts are all underlying, are always sort of the same, like overconfidence. The way that that the the solution that you're sort of helping them to instantiate is always going to be different, and some of it's going to be trial and error, mm -hmm. right? It's sort of you know, it's it's like I mean, I think about this with tennis. I, you know, it's like I'll have. Uh, my coach will tell me something 17 different ways. And sometimes it's just like the 17th time they say it in a way that clicks. I can, I, I can actually put it into practice, but they've told me the same thing before in different ways. And for some reason I just couldn't incorporate the way we're, they were saying it. And that, that ends up happening with this a lot. So this is like the opposite of a five point plan. It's more, this is an organic living, breathing problem that we sort of need to sort of live inside of before we can kind of start to figure out how do we actually address this and then being very clear with people that when you do address this you're going to make it a little bit better so when someone says can you fix it my answer is gosh no because uh, i have ms dos rendering it's really bad um so no but i can make it a little better i can maybe you know make it a little more efficient 
Um, and the thing is, though, that what I think is really wonderful about these kinds of solutions is that a little bit better goes a long way. I mean, it compounds over time. Mm -hmm. So if you can just get it, you know, shift it to the right of the distribution a little bit, you've gone a long way. You don't have to get anywhere toward fixing it to really see to see real results. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I know, Michael, we had a conversation about this in our last time about learning from, hey, this worked here. Now we're applying it in this different city, different situation. It didn't work at all. Exact same thing. Doesn't work, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and and the, the part that we loved is that you're very open with that and, and talking mm -hmm. about those failures. And, and I think part of that, and I, again, not putting words in your mouth, but I will, is that, you know, that's how we learn. And so to your point, it's that 17th time. And yeah, this, you know, the 16th time didn't work. Well, here's, here's you know, it didn't work here. So let's learn from that instead of just doing 16 time again and again right. and again, because we need to shift that up. So. Just one quick thing. Um, one thing I think the behavioral science could and should be doing all the time is doing predictions before they run experiments, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Because, and this is not particularly revolutionary, but it's just not done. And the reason I say this is what you were, I, you were touching on, I think, hindsight bias before, where once you get the results, it's all very obvious. Of course it was that. Even though you know, actually, in one part of your brain, you did not predict that at all. Oh. But as soon as you get it, you start rationalizing it. And I think it's very important to, uh, to remain very humble about how unpredictable behavior is and how little we still know. I do think predictions, you just got to find a moment to it and say, what do you think is going to work best here, if, if anything? Jeff, would you, that's, a great, that's a great closing thought right there um, before we move on to music. Oh, aren't we going to do questions well, from we'll the do, crowd? We'll do those questions, but, but I want to talk about music first. But, but just to follow on, on Michael's comment, uh, do you have any, you know, what kind of closing thoughts, what sort of words of pearls of wisdom would you want to well, share here? If I can rephrase your question, you're saying, we ended perfectly, can you ruin it now? <laughs> no, that's my job. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that you're right, that it was, again, I think, I'm just going to let Mike have the last Moving word. On. Yeah. You, oh, okay. No, no, no. Okay. Well done. Would it, it, am I going to totally screw talk things music. up if I just... Talk music. You always want to talk music. I do. I do. I it's know. behavioral groups. It's, right? It's behavioral groups. We talk music. So uh, and I'm going to start with Jeff. Jeff, what's on your playlist right now? What are you listening to? What do you uh, listen to on the way down? Sure. Uh, I will say music, unfortunately, is one of the things that's suffered as I've grown old and other responsibilities. Music and knowing like every... Just knowing the music. So a lot of it is what comes into me. Uh, but right now, with that said as a baseline, I'm really into Motown. Um, I have uh, Ooh Child sort of playlist, a Pandora playlist, um, and a little bit of um, context. My, my son is seven, and oftentimes we'll get music, and we'll play, and we'll sing, and all. And he had a little problem at school one day, and we were talking about it before we went to bed. And just that morning, we had listened to Ooh Child, and, you know, Ooh, ooh Child, things are going to get easier. And we finished talking about his problem at school, and then I turn off the light, and he starts singing, Ooh, <laughs> ah. and it just made me so, it was, ugh, was it's so sad. sweet. It's sweet or really terrible. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Motown is the long answer. Okay, Michael, how about you? So I've been listening to a band called Big Thief, um, who've just put two albums out this year, which I was quite impressed with, and uh, they're from Brooklyn. Um, they are both great albums, in fact, they're they're on a, a bit of a roll. Um, you know, it's always very difficult to describe bands if you haven't heard them. Um, so it's a uh, 
the, the closest I can get to sort of a bit like Yolas Hengo and a bit of PJ Harvey in there as well, mm. maybe. Um, there is, yeah, and a bon, bit of Bonnie either yeah. as well in terms of, yeah. that, but it's, the singer is female, so it doesn't quite work. Um, well, bon Iver kind of sounds like a female yeah, sometimes. Okay. Yes, so. he does. But yeah, I think um, both albums this year have been excellent. I recommend What's the name again? Big Thief. Big Thief. Excellent. Great recommendation. Annie, what are you listening to these days? CNN. <laughs> <laughs> Put some music in your life, Annie. I need to. Uh, okay, today my daughter sent me a, a – she's a singer. and she, Anyway, she sent me a Joni Mitchell song. That was nice. So I listened to that. Uh, the best music memory I have recently was uh, my youngest daughter. Um, she she had watched she watched Rocket Man and I had separately watched Rocket Man and she was she thought it was just the greatest movie ever and we were in our dining room and I put it on my iPhone and we were dancing around and then we ended up with Bohemian Rhapsody and then we ended up with the Violent Femmes and then we were like listening to like. The white stripes and like, but like, oh, and then like, uh, oh, cake. We started doing like Cake's version of I Will Survive. But like, you have to picture like, neither of us can sing that well. She sings much better than I do, but like none of us are going to be a professional. And we're just like at the top of our lungs, but we're also like dancing with each other. And it was like, there Sounds you great. Go. It was the best. Sounds well, awesome. Cake doesn't really sing. It's more spoken word. I mean, you know, that kind of. Yeah, but so, still, like, you got, you know, they have a really good beat going. They like, do. With I Will Survive, they're, like, their version of it, which I happen to prefer. <laughs> to the Bee Gees? What? I Will, I will Survive? I Will Survive? No. Oh, oh Donna Summer. Yeah. 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 No, Gloria Gaynor. Gloria Gaynor. What are you talking about? Oh, man, I totally missed that. <laughs> this oh. whole thing is a sham. <laughs> Jim is a musician. <laughs> no, he's not. No, no. I don't now. even know what just happened. I know. I just, oh, I can't believe Anyway, that. I think we even ended up like, and I could just say I'm so sick of this song and I hate it, but it just seemed appropriate given the some of the period we're living in, I may have put on Hotel California. Oh. Which we may have sure. sung at the now, top of our love. How do you dance to Hotel California? Oh, then you're just sort of waving, you know, oh, yeah. like. It's, it's California freaky stuff. Yeah, you know, that's, yeah. That's good. It's just good to end on California. But it was the best. A hundred million records of that song were sold. It was like rocket yeah, the best. There you go. Jeff, you look like you've got, you're edging on something. You're just. Poised. No, I was just imagining myself curled in a ball listening to Hotel California. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if that's dancing. <laughs> yeah. All right, we have, we have 10 minutes left. Um, and so with that, we are going to, we, we asked the live audience here to send in some questions. So we're gonna ask some of their questions. Um, and if you have a name and I can't pronounce it, I apologize in advance. Um, so I'm gonna start with this one. Uh, and whoever wants to chime in, I'm not gonna put it to anyone. If you had unlimited resources, which bias would you study in more detail and how? And that's from Jancy Moll, if I pronounced that right, I apologize. Biases, which would you, un unlimited resources. We're all looking oh. at you, Michael. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was looking at Jeff. Oh. Oh. I was looking over there. <laughs> Wasn't that a cake song? I was looking at Michael, he was looking over oh. I, I, I have an answer, actually. All right, go. So I think the bias that I would probably uh, really dive deep into because I just wish I had unlimited because I already am um, is I just started some work with uh, Jay Van Babel up at 
NYU, and we're looking at backfire effect, which we think uh, is very interesting. So just for people who don't know what the backfire effect is, uh, Michael disagrees with me. I tell him information that um, disagrees with him. And instead of, uh, and the, the information, like for all he knows, it's reliable, one would assume. Um, and then all of a sudden, instead of being like, oh, okay, I'm changing my belief toward the information, he actually entrenches in his belief. What's interesting about this literature is that some people find it in a very strong way and other people don't find it. Um, and I think it's really inherent to kind of understanding belief and what, what is belief's purpose, right? So belief uh, has a purpose that's epistemological, meaning I would like to know what's true of the world. So if I'm standing on top of a six-story building, um, I would like to recruit my beliefs about what would happen if I jump off. Um, but it also has a signaling purpose. When I tell you my beliefs, I tell you something about the tribe that I belong to. Um, and I think it, I would, I really want to dig deep into this because I think that identity is so at the core of so many of these biases and really understand under what circumstances do you get backfire? When don't you? How is it wrapped into this more signaling purpose of belief? Because I think that underneath you know, I think that you can really sort of underlie that across like so many different biases to kind of bring them together and understand where they're coming from. You know, it's interesting. We did, um, Tim talked about Cal Turnbull and his, his component, but that's a big piece of some of the asking people for giving me information that uh, contradicts my current belief and try to influence me to believe the other way. And so it's really interesting that that comes in. Jeff, did you, you? There, there's a ton. I mean, it, the, the power of language, particularly in regards to setting expectations, and this was just something we wrote about in our book, so I don't the, what exact bias it is, but like the expectation, the word artisanal, for mm -hmm. instance, is like, the, it, to me, it's the hook example of signaling the value of something that we can't otherwise value. And I see language like, like the artisanal hammer. Artisanal hammer. Yes, right. yeah. I think they have yeah. Pay more on for Etsy. an artisanal hammer. You can get one on Etsy. You, you know those uh, airline magazines, like three days, yeah. and where like there was a thing. Go here and try some of their artisanal moonshine. What? <laughs> Is that, artisanal means handmade. Anyway, so as artisanal is the hook, and just the power of language to shape expectations for better or worse, and um, in all politics and, and socially and economically, it's. It's too broad to be like study one bias, but that's been. But my you have life. unlimited resources, so you're. Excited. Oh, I can get an army of people. There you're you hired. Re and, well, it reminds me of uh, Christina Bicchieri's uh, book, uh, "The Grammar of Society." You know, this how we, how we speak about the world informs so much about how we. So it's been done. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but not to the point where exactly. you want to take it. There not with go. artisanal hammers. <laughs> yeah. So I. I, I'll try and keep this brief. I think there's uh, some really interesting work to be done at the uh, interface of complexity uh, theory and behavioral science and how they relate. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted to say very briefly about a study that I read, which I was just like, this is a great study. Um, so you may be familiar about 10 years ago, there was a study about online music. This is about music. Uh, I'm music, there, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, it's, it's pretty famous. So it's, uh, you know, how musical tastes uh, develop, or indeed, sorry, po po how popularity of songs develop. Yeah. And um, are you familiar with it? So yeah. they have these multiple worlds, and in one world you can see what other people are, are playing, and the other you can't. And they found that, um, it, you know, there was a high degree of chance about what became popular and what didn't, um, depending whether you could see what other people are doing. And what you see there is kind of cascade effects. 
um, the way the behaviors spread rapidly and unexpectedly, uh, and you're not sure why certain behaviors spread and why certain ones don't. So this study basically updated it, um, came out this year around political beliefs. How do political beliefs form? Uh, like musical, like uh, songs become um, popular. And they did the same thing, um, but in one, uh, in one state of the world, people were asked, you know, what's your political affiliation and what do you think about these particular issues? And they made them not very like abortion or, you know, where there's a strong thing. It was things like, do you think we should replace the lottery-based juror system? Or um, does social media have a positive influence on our, our lives? Uh, and in the other world, um, you could see um, basically whether uh, which issues people who are Democrat or Republican were preferring. And basically, in the, in the one we couldn't see what was going on, both groups uh, in the US, Democrat, Republican, were, had statistically insignificant differences in what they were saying. But of course, in the one where they could see, they massively sorted into partisan yep. groups. But the things they sorted on varied from group to group. So it wasn't like in one world, all, you know, everyone dislikes the juror system. Uh, if you're Republican, likes you for Democrat and the same. It was completely random. No, no, sorry, not completely random. There was a high degree of variance from world to world, which suggests there were arbitrary uh, political views being sorted into groups almost instantly, which does present a degree of hope if people realize that a lot of this solidified thing has come about quite quickly and arbitrarily. Or, or it pr provides a degree of despair when you realize that <laughs> certain people are changing what was previously defined as being appropriate behavior <laughs> and just people are going to go along with it because it's their tribe that's saying that it's okay to be totally corrupt. So I think I think we're, we should, we, we're studying the same, we want to study the same thing. That's what I think is that, you know, if you think about that, it's like in, in the world where you're shielded from everybody, it's much more about your just epistemology. What are the things you believe to be true of the world? And the other one, it's signal, 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 I'm, right? I'm just, this is all signaling. So I, I just, I feel like this is so like deep down underneath everything that's going on with us. Let's fix everything. How much time do we have? We got three we got minutes. Three minutes. Okay. We, we, we got time for another question. And uh, now, last question. Well, this person didn't put their name on it, but I think it's a it's a great question. It's a really great question. I feel like and he wrote the question. Thanks. I am. I'm, I'm signaling. I'm letting you know this is the best damn question you've ever heard. Yeah. So don't you don't you agree? What's your favorite song? No. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for people who are not confident and even doubt themselves frequently. Are they also having overconfidence bias? Potentially. Yeah. Speak to that, Michael. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fine. In three minutes or less. <laughs> so um, I'm going to answer a slightly easier question, which is a thing about overconfidence is that you know there may be uh, benefits to it. You know, maybe selections for it. So if you're a politician, being overconfident uh, often gets you elected, and then you can kind of fudge things later. Um, there's a study I, I came across, recent one showing this is a correlation, it's, it's like epidemiology, so caveat, that people who are more optimistic have uh, less heart disease, mm. right? So now this is, this is a bit like, you know, people who eat X have, live longer. So you have to be very careful about it, but you could see there's a plausible mechanism there. So we talk about biases, but sometimes uh, over-optimism or optimism may be um, a good thing in one sense, and we're just over here looking at the wrong thing. Oh, you're biased. Well, actually, no, that you're getting better outcomes through, through uh, over-optimism. 
Well, to, going to back to Annie in the in restaurants, right? If if we looked at restaurant failures after one year, nobody would start a new yeah. restaurant because well, the failure rate is is huge. But we're overconfident in our own ability to make it succeed, and so. Yeah, so th there's actually two things. There's a very interesting study that showed uh, that suggests that overconfidence leads you to um, punch above your weight in the gene pool. Yeah. So people who are overconfident actually end up getting mates that are a little better than they would rate to get. Can uh, we cut this part out of the <laughs> podcast? <laughs> And what's interesting about it was what they found is that people are pretty good at, at um, spotting deception. Hmm. So you can't pretend to be overconfident. You actually have to deceive yourself in order to get this effect. So that's a positive overconfidence. And then I was going to say the same thing. Nobody would ever do a startup yeah. if, you, if you weren't overconfident. Hey. I mean, two minutes later, I realized the answer I should give, which is that, yes, you can, because this thing called calibration where uh, it's, you know, it's like, do you know the answer? Or what's the answer and how confident are you in your answer? And it can be fine if you're down at, I don't know, but I know I don't know. So um, Philip Tetlock's work is yeah. all about making good good calibration in your decision making, which could mean you're aware you don't know things. Yeah. That's terrific. Everybody, a big round of applause for Annie, Michael, and Jeff. Fantastic. And with that, we have just uh, thank everybody for being here again. Uh, we want to thank uh, not only Annie and Jeff, but we also Ben back there and Mike. Oh, uh, sorry, Ben and Rhea who helped. Trey, who is back in the booth, who you can't see, but he's the technical director here. Uh, thank everybody there. And uh, also, again, thank Podbean. Uh, thank PeopleScience. PeopleScience.com, everybody. PeopleScience.com. Uh, Behavioral Alchemy and Lantern Group. We, we, uh, we, we make ourselves sponsors, too. Let's also just, the, the folks here at, uh, at uh, PFAA have just been fabulous. Yes, thank really. you. Just the whole team who, uh, who we work with. Of course, Harry, who, who did the, uh, uh, the catering, and, uh, and uh, really, uh, Kate and everybody who, who's made this happen tonight. Thank you. This is a beautiful space. We love being here. Yes, thank you. grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our 100th episode conversation, yes. have a free-flowing discussion, and whatever else comes into our totally blown minds. Our 100th episode totally blown minds. Oh my gosh, was that <laughs> not fun? It was so much fun to do it. Oh it my gosh. It was a blast, and for all of the people that were there live, and for you know all three of our guests, it was just... yeah. I had a smile on my face the entire time. I don't know if it shows oh, or can be heard, but I definitely did. I had perma smile. Well, I think we also sound like chipmunks <laughs> because we were so excited. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our voices go up two octaves. Is that how that works? I think so. It does. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. thank you to everybody again. We've said it multiple times already, but yeah. thank you, thank you, thank you. So what are did you take away um, from this really robust wildly crazy conversation that we had. Well, I'm going to quote Jeff as, as a way of getting into sort of a bigger picture story. And that is we, we are our own best advisor that we trust <laughs> our own voice more than we trust anyone else. Right. Right. And, and this, 
to me is a great summary of all of the of the biases that we talked about. All of the overconfidence, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, all all these things kind of flow into this idea that, of course, I think I'm doing things right. Right. That inside viewpoint that Annie talked about as opposed to the outside viewpoint. And we hear ourselves. We talk to ourselves. It's the world we live in. It is- Everything gets processed through me. Yes. And so why would we not have- that idea that we right. are our best advisors. And we need to be, right? I mean, anthropologically, right? We need to be able to trust ourselves. Yes. Because not trusting ourselves would be really bad. <laughs> that would be really bad. <laughs> well, but, but you know. It, but it's also important, going back to what Larry, Larry Santos always says, your mind lies to you. Yes. And, and, the, and the challenge is that we need to get away from our inside voice. For, for me, the big story is get away from my inside voice from time to time and listen to another voice. Actually listen, L- you know, pay attention, be aware, and that that can help inform me of better ways of dealing with my world. Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. Using that base rate that we talked about, bringing up this component of, hey, in a similar situation. Yes. Oh, yeah. What do other people do? That's right. And to realize that, yes, you have your own unique elements right there. I loved Annie's talking about this. Like, hey, if it's purely random chance, probably pretty much go with that base rate pretty much all of the all time. All the time. However, if it's about getting that first serve in on tennis, well, all right. Yeah, on average, that's 62%. But if you've never played tennis, it's probably going to be less than that. If you are in the, you know, the tournament, you probably are doing much better. Much better than that. So you have to take those unique contexts and situations into account. That being said, we too often have that overconfidence of believing our own advice and our own ability, the overconfidence aspect. And then, you know, Motivated reasoning, confirmation bias for me that we talked about in here is still, it's the mother of all biases in my, in my opinion. Wow. I, I, I believe Mo- that. Motivated reasoning, re- motivated reasoning specifically? Confirmation, confirmation bias, bias, right? Okay. That the idea that when information comes in, it gets filtered at this, not at a conscious level, but it gets filtered at this unconscious level so that we actually see it and, and hear it when it confirms the beliefs that we're already holding. Yeah. Interesting. We discount it when it contradicts those pre-held beliefs. Instantly. Or we ignore it. Yeah. Or it doesn't even register. Yeah. And, you know, it, it goes to a lot of what I think is some of the aspects of the world that we live in today and why it is like it is. Uh, and some of the the challenges that we're facing. Either thinking specifically of political environments in the UK and the US right now. Well, I think those this are is hi- highly partisan. I think those are definitely the the tribalism that's coming in and different things, but also just our now lack of trust in the media, right? Because yeah. if the media says something that is different than my pre-held belief, well, then that must be fake news because I have this other source that is reinforcing that over here that I can now believe and I don't have to challenge and confirm what I confirm what I already believe. And it confirms what I already believe. Yeah. And so I don't have to challenge myself to say, well, maybe, maybe there's all these other, you know, social pressures out here that are saying this. Maybe I need to actually reassess my perspective in my view, I, I think that 
that motivated reasoning, which leads to confirmation bias is really, really key. Which gets, which feeds into this idea of we have to, I think that my life is better when I take a pause from listening to the inside and listen to the outside. I really, you know, when, and it's hard. It is. It takes effort. It, it, it have, I have to be very intentional about it and then really listen and really make some um, logical deductions about what's going on. Well, it goes back to bring in, you know, we have a hundred episodes to fall back on, right? <laughs> yes, we and, do. And Cal Turnball, right? And, oh, yeah. You know, change my view change my view right opening ourselves up to having our perspective changed and being open to people convincing us that maybe we're we're in the wrong yeah or or that our view could be enhanced you know sometimes i don't like to think about as being wrong because confirmation bias is going to build a big damn wall between me and outside information. But if I think about, well, maybe could my viewpoint be enhanced in that way? Yeah. Could it be refined? Could I come to a higher level of thinking about this rather than just, I'm going to have to dismiss an old belief? Right. Changing from, I have an 80% confidence in this to maybe a 60%. Right. Rather than I believe or I don't believe. Right. It's black or it's white. No, we're pretty much live in a gray world. And so let's reassess and pause, as you said, take that outside view, allow that view to actually come into our brains and process it and think about it. Take some, you know, not just system one thinking, but let's do some system two thinking here. Which is hard. Which is hard. Yeah. And process this. And I think that is the one of the biggest insights from me for this is... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Is that, you know, we have all of these, you know, biases that impact our making the best decisions, right? This was about decision making. And we have all of these heuristics and biases that may not lead us to the best outcome. And there's not, as as Katie Milkman said in the last one, there's not a silver bullet for this. No, nope, there is not. But nope. we have to keep trying. We have to keep that's, exploring. And we have to it. be open yes. to, to having our viewpoint changed. And it's hard because... Also, as Katie said, we're not built to do the right thing no. all the time. Right. That's just not the way that we're built. Well, okay. and, and so that leads me into a second thing, right? So, yeah, Which was what? Well, Annie said it, I think, in a way that, that, again, I loved, right? Is she, you know, we're born with an operating system. Yes. You know? That's a so, great image, wasn't it? Yeah, we're born with this operating system, and you can't shift that operating system out. Yeah. So, so to that point, how do you improve your decision-making? What are some of the hacks? And we had this really interesting conversation about that Jeff brought up that was, you had mentioned, so what are some hacks to do? And then he, he brought up this element of saying, is it a hack or are we actually engaging these biases to be productive? Like the example that Jeff gave about his uh, using gamification to get his kids to eat vegetables. Exactly, it's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a nudge component, right? right it it right. really is. It's it's understanding what these biases and how they work, and now let's put them to use. So you know, in in you know the the famous nudge thing about organ donor being opt in or opt out, we yeah. know that 
not many people are going to opt out from the pre-choice selection. That's it. And so we defaults, can use defaults default, are huge. We yeah. can use that from a choice architecture perspective. We can think about, you know, gamifying things that we don't like. Going into, you know, again, last week with with Katie Milkman and temptation bundling. How can we we understand that we will do things if we have this uh, incentive at the at the end yeah. for for doing it. So all of those factors that come into play on this, and I really like this. It's not so much about you know stopping that behavior sometimes as it is in working with our own operating system and understanding that operating system and moving it forward. That leads me into uh, the the discussion sort of about context matters. It, uh, we didn't say that explicitly, but this whole idea that there's a lot going on and we need to consider the context in which things happen. We, we have a unique, everybody has a unique situation. All the time. All of the time. Right. And and it's hard to, to for I mean, it's, it's impossible, right? Our brains are not built to, to take in all the data that we need all the time. So this is where we can, we can think about context. And when we're, I think about it in an anticipatory way, uh, when I'm going into a situation, okay, what is that going to mean? You know, how can, how can I leverage something that is natural and organic in me for the better rather than for the worse, right? Right. right? So, so I, I think about, and this is a little bit off topic, but I think about how easy it is to get uh, stressed about going into a presentation. Yeah. Okay, so knowing that there's all this energy, right, that's built up in my system, why not use that for good? Yeah. Why not actually use that for the positive side of making the presentation rather than feeling like, Oh, they're all against me, and I'm so nervous. Well, that's and, exactly what Michael said, right? I mean, yeah. he brought that up the the energy that or the the tumble, the rumble in your tum- stomach, right? That kind yeah. of the butterflies that you get. It is. It can be interpreted in two different ways. It yeah. can be interpreted as being nervous and scary, or a source of energy for doing something good. Or my gosh, I'm so excited about this, yeah. and that's that feeling. So it comes into how we think about it. It comes into thinking, framing it, framing it, anchoring it in the appropriate perspective. And yes, you know, we talked about behavioral hacks and do you leverage these behavioral biases to to use them? And sometimes we actually do need to stop, right? We need to understand that, hey, I am probably overconfident in this situation. Yeah. And so how can I ensure that that doesn't make me have a poorer choice than I would if I didn't have that overconfidence. Or I might be engaging in motivated reasoning in these situations. So how do I make sure that I am aware of that and potentially can inoculate myself so that it isn't uh, a detriment to me actually understanding and realizing what the real world is going on there and making sure that my decisions in that real world are reflective of reality and not what I want it to be. So, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I got a musical question for you. No, you don't. This is the 100th episode. I thought we said after 100, we're just done. Oh, we we, are, say we that. are all done we with music. Not, I would not say that. <laughs> what? We never said that. Oh, were maybe you, that was in were, my brain. I think right? that was an inside Maybe voice. that was a motivated reasoning for me <laughs> where I was thinking, oh, yeah, at 100 episode, we're going to end all this musical garbage, right? <laughs> we are not going to end this musical oh, garbage. Of course not. Because it's wonderful. It is. It is. I, I give you grief. But it is a it is a loving, playful group. But but the challenge is uh, that uh, see I'm thinking about we were in Philadelphia, which is the home of what is commonly referred to as Philadelphia soul. So in the late '60s, when Motown was being developed in you know Motown, referring to Detroit, Detroit, and Motown Records, Barry Gordy, you know, developing the Supremes and the Temptations and the Jackson Five and and you know fabulous acts there. At the same time, Philadelphia was developing the OJ's. You know that you know love train. You know love train and uh, and the spinners. That could it be? I'm falling in love. You know that one. So uh, okay. So the spinners. Um, and then there was the whole white soul that came out of Philadelphia. Okay, Hall and Oates, which might be a little closer to the. You're still you still have a look. I'm just thinking this is this is just not going anywhere, is it? I'm not. <laughs> I wish people could see my face because I, I am so looking too. at Tim with this eye, with this face of like I don't know any of these Hall uh, the notes uh, I got I, okay. I got that I know them okay yeah, there you go so keep going keep going I'll, well, I'll, I, I'll go with you yes and <laughs> so I need another sip of our beer I'm wondering you know what kind of Philadelphia soul has influenced you what what Philadelphia soul you've listened to over the years and the fact that again I'm <laughs> Thinking that Holland did Holland Oats did that even? Oh my God! I hated Holland Oats. (laughs) (laughs) That was the epitome for me of bad pop from the early eighties. Right? It was. I can't go for that. You know, I mean, Sarah. uh, The 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 only song is uh, the rich girl or you're a rich girl. Yeah, yeah, that that's okay, right? From my my perspective, but pretty much everything else was overproduced. You know. Well, they're sta- they were standing on the shoulders of the Spinners and the OJ's, okay. and, you know, bands like that. So yeah. that's a that's a great thing. So what about you? I will turn this back because you have know these and you understand them. You can sing the damn songs. <laughs> I, on the other hand, I'm like going, I the OJ's aren't aren't they a baseball team? And no, no <laughs> that's the Blue Jays. Oh, see, I don't even know that. Love Train, I, uh, you know, this for some reason my brain goes to, I heard a uh, bluegrass band do a rendition of Love Train. Okay. Which was so fascinating because here it is, this this soul tune, you know, that was, you know, written in the early 1960s and uh, a bluegrass band covered it yeah. with a bluegrass vibe and did a great job. I'm going to try and find it and put it in the show notes because it was so fun. Cool. Did, um, was, was Philadelphia where they did Soul Train? The, the TV show? It was. See, uh, there, uh, see I am not always stupid. Was. It was. All right. So so that I watched every once in a while because it was back in the day when we had three channels and, you know, Saturday came on and it was that or some bad news thing. So I watched that for a little bit. <laughs> That's right. I always thought that was fun. With well, it was, their, the, it was the dance segments. Right? It, was it was the like dance segments. Watching what people are coming up with. Well, and watching the outfits that they oh, had yeah. on that were Which amazing as well. Made for TV, exotic, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Okay. So of our hundred episodes, 
Is there a musical conversation that we have had with anybody that stands out for you? Because obviously this music is, I think it's it's integral to what we've what behavioral groove ha, grooves has become, right? Mm-hmm. It is it is this segment that we do. But for me, I don't have a single component, but it adds a layer in that I don't think we would get otherwise. Yeah. It opens some people up um, in ways that I would not have anticipated. So I'm asking you, is there any one moment that sticks out for you? There's a couple. Okay. Uh, one was Jim Gusha when okay. we were talking about and the diversity of him going from jazz to classical music uh, or serious music, you know, 20th century uh, serious music. I loved having that conversation with yeah. him, just thinking about the diversity of stuff that he listens to, yeah. uh, as well as um, Alex Blau when we talked about reggae and his deep appreciation for the for the roots reggae stuff was really cool. And Alex Emus yeah. uh, comes to mind as when because he talked about being a songwriter. And what it was like to go from being a songwriter as an undergrad and then getting into grad school and writing so damn much that he that his brain had no more room for writing songs. Was that did that come into play into your own life? Yeah, your- that's yeah, that's I, I, I felt that a couple of years ago when I when I started this this business, uh, this this uh, consultancy that I started writing so much that I started losing um, any brain space for writing songs. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So. How about you? Do you have any? So my thing was Kuhn. Um, yeah, Kuhn Smith. Oh, that was so great. Yes. And he talked the, about the, the... The chord, the, the altered chord. The altered chord, yeah. you know. And for me, that was where it struck me that this musical little conversation that we have in each of these episodes isn't just a rabbit hole that you want to go down, but it provides a really interesting insight into how people think. And in that conversation, it just struck me as a flash that, wow, an altered chord. So that you can take this musical analogy and now you can apply that to all of these different aspects of life and it makes a really kind of an impact. Kuhn, so. uh, Kuhn kind of said, everything is jazz. We're always improvising. We're always, we, we might have a format. We might have a, a symphonic basis for going into a meeting, but we're improvising as we go. We're making shit up. And I love that. Yeah. yeah that, was a, that was a terrific discussion too. So there we go. Yes. So thank you. Thank you all for listening to 100 episodes. 100 episodes. And cheers. Grab your 100-year-old scotch that you're drinking, and we'll drink our uh, 10-day-old beer. But thank you for listening, and stay tuned for Tim's bonus drink. Hello, everyone. This is Tim with a bonus track and a groove idea for our 100th episode. There was so much great content in this episode that it's hard to summarize into just a few key takeaways. But the biggest one for me is that our behaviors are influenced by so many different biases. Being aware of them is one thing, but understanding how to hack them is going to be dependent on context. Second, we need to, and we can, leverage these behavioral biases to help us. We've evolved this way, and as Annie said, we have a certain operating system that we're born with. 
We have to work with that operating system to figure out how to best use it to improve our outcomes and our decisions. Okay, here is your groove idea for the week. This is an idea or question for you to ponder. Here it is. Think about one bias that you know impacts you, that you could turn from a liability into something that is positive. Is there a bias that drives your behavior that you could use to help you achieve something or make better decisions? That's it for our 100th episode. But before I go, I want to thank you profusely for listening. It is because of you that we do this show and keeps us going for now 100 episodes. Kurt and I enjoy knowing that you are listening, and we hope that we are making a difference. We want to hear from you, so please reach out with ideas, thoughts, and feedback. And as always, if you like these episodes, please share them with a friend. Leave a review or give us a five-star rating. That goes a long, long way in expanding this community and ensuring that we will be around to celebrate our 200th episode. Thanks for listening and allowing us the opportunity to create 100 of these crazy things. Thank you.